We've been talking through this toolbox series, and uh, we're going to talk through what is really a final discipline. Every week we've kind of handled one of the things that we think we have to be disciplined about in our faith life. We've talked about scripture, we've talked about prayer, we've talked about being open and kind of connecting with other people and watching God's power flow through us, and that was last week. And today we've got to talk about what is... A, Maybe the least fun of our disciplines, okay? Uh, so you'll, you'll have to perk up your ears, because I've got to tell you that uh, you know, it, it's a lot of fun to talk about prayer for me. It really is. I mean, that's not a hard topic. It's a lot of fun to talk about the scriptures. I enjoy the scriptures. They've been a lifelong uh, passion of mine to understand them. But when it co- comes to confession, you know, we, we, we'd all just kind of like to go hide in the restroom if, you, if you're with me, wouldn't you? I mean, when it comes to this topic, it's not a fun topic. And yet, that's what we need to talk about. And I believe, frankly, that we can pray for all we're worth, and we can read the scriptures for hours on end every day, and we can live open lives with our neighbors and and really get connected in very powerful ways with God. But the fact is that if we don't have this final moment, if we don't have this final discipline of confession, everything else kind of goes by the wayside. We will lose our spiritual lives, we will lose our walks with God if we don't have a solid basis where we are honest with our Lord. When I was a kid, one of my first remembrances of church, one of the first things I can recall remembering, we went to this, church, we went to this uh, kind of a community church in a smaller town, and there was one big uh, business in this town. And this family owned the business, and this family kind of owned the church. Have you ever seen that sort of scenario? So this town, the largest business was run by this single family, and they also were the deacons, the elders, all sorts of different things within the church. They were up, down, and all over the place. They were the Sunday school teachers. And in a church of 300, we probably had 50 people from this one family, okay? And they all worked for this business. And I still remember the, 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 the generational transition that was taking place from father to son as the CEO uh, retired and then his son became the next CEO of this business. And after a few years, it wasn't going well. And I guess probably everybody in our church knew this, but I didn't. You know, I was probably five years old at the time. But I remember this man getting up in front of our church and standing up in front of us all and saying, our company is going bankrupt the company that was the basis for this town's economy, and frankly, for the church's economy. This business is is going under, and I can't prop it up anymore. And what's more is we owe a lot of you a, a lot of money, and I need to be open and honest about that and tell you that we will do something. We will We will find a way to pay you back, but we can't today, and we are shutting the doors of our business until we can handle this in a different way. And it was just amazing. You know, it's one of those churches, we get to kind of expect things. We know what comes next, right? We know, well, this is the offering time, and this is the, this is the time when the pastor gets up, and there's always three points or two points or whatever sort of church it is. And, and, and it was at that moment we realized this was not in the normal way of things. And you could have heard a pin drop in that service. And people who were sitting there had no idea that this company was going bankrupt and that, that company owned, that, owned them thousands of dollars. And I watched as that church moved forward from that moment. And they moved forward well. And that guy who was the, the, the lead guy in the company, the head guy who confessed this, and it wasn't necessarily his personal sin. It was just being open with what was happening in their life. The fact that he confessed it, the fact that he opened up about it, and that he put this out in front of the whole congregation just like that, it changed everything. He was able to stay in the church. Everybody pretty much stayed in the church. And they walked through this as far as a wounded process. It was like something had died and everybody understood it, but they could grieve together as a result. And that that honesty allowed for that to take place. You know, 
we, in all of our relationships, we need trust, right? We need trust. You, you have to have trust back and forth in order to have a relationship. And frankly, trust is built not so much on being perfect. It's not built on being right. It's not built on even necessarily every day being good. It's built on being honest. You know, I, I found after years of marriage, only, well, eight and a half of them, I won't say I'm a, a seasoned veteran yet, but I'll, I'll say that Shelby and I have found that it's not the things that we do right in our life. It's the things that we tell each other. It's just the process of communicating. And even when I fail, Shelby asked me something the other day, and she, says, she said, what, what, are you, what are you doing right now? And I was in the other room, and I said, I don't want to tell you because if I tell you, I'm going to have to feel bad, you know? And, and, and it, you know, I was sitting down doing something on the computer, and Shelby's like, well, you get up and do the dishes, you know. But, but, I mean, honestly, we have to just kind of face those moments. That's a dumb example. But we have to face the moments of our lives, good, bad, and ugly, with honesty. And our relationship with God is very much like a relationship with another person. We have to face it with honesty. We either face it with honesty or we lose track of it, and that relationship goes missing in our lives. We lose our walk with God. So I'm going to read this morning from 1 John chapter 1, and you can turn there in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, I'm going to read starting with verse 5. And uh, this is, you know, this may not be your favorite passage of Scripture, but I think it should be, okay? This should be on the, in the running for the favorite passage because everybody in this room has messed up, right? This is the best passage in the Bible. Tim and I have talked about it. We both agree this is the single best passage in the Bible for people who blow it. <laughs> That's, 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 that means this is your passage, right? And it, it's my passage. We need this passage. So I'm going to read it for you. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him, in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And John's writing this at the very end of his life. He's in his 90s when he writes this book, most likely. And so when he calls them his little children, they didn't feel insulted like you might. He was 90 years old telling them these things. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Also for those of the whole world. We have to kind of talk about this. What is confession? What does it mean to confess? What exactly does that word mean? I heard somebody say, own up. That's good, Steve. I think we'll be okay. Um, I heard somebody say, own up. Bob, did you say that? Okay. I almost got him. Did you see it? I almost got him. Sorry, Steve. So own up, okay? What else? Open admission. Is that what you said? Open admission, okay. This word in the ancient language literally means say the same thing. So I say yes and you say yes. It just means that, just saying the same thing. 
Literally, it means agreeing with God about the truth. Whatever the truth might be, whatever God says about our lives, it means that we agree with God. So literally, it just means agreement. It means that we look at God and we verbalize. We, for us, it might seem like we're admitting things. Sometimes I think people have to confess that they're good. Sometimes I think we kind of hear, we get so browbeaten in our lives that we, we, we believe every lie that anybody says about us. And God is actually saying, no, I, I created you good in some ways that you're trying to, that you're trying to hide. It's, hide. It's trying to agree with God. Now, in this passage, I want you to notice that there are two ways that we blow it with God. In verse In verse 6, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There's, There's a couple different ways where trust with God in us goes missing. And they're both ways where we lose honesty in our lives, okay? We, they're ways that we somehow have a problem with God and the truth goes completely missing in our lives, according to John. And he says the first one of those is that we hide. The first one of those is that we hide. When we have sin in our lives, when we have something where we know God's not happy with us, what do you want to do? Do you feel like praying? No, you feel like not talking to him anymore, right? You feel like we kind of want to hide out. When I was a kid, we used to um, build snow forts. This is in Michigan when we used to have snow, you know. And, and uh, we had these huge uh, drifts that were around our church parking lot. And my brother and I used to tunnel through those drifts and build these great snow forts. And uh, I remember one day building one of those. We spent all afternoon building these tunnels that they kind of connected with each other. We had all these different tunnels up and down the hill, and I had to go get something. And I was coming back, and I thought it was far down from the drifts, and I couldn't see the, the openings from our side. So I, I was trying to avoid caving in the tunnels, and I walked over the, the drift, and, and as it turns out, I walked over right on top of my brother's tunnel. And I caved it in, you know, the whole thing just, boom, down like this. And we had all sorts of things. We actually, these tunnels were so elaborate, we had them propped up with sticks and all sorts of things. It didn't really hold my weight, but we had hammers out there. And, and Dave looked at me, and he was so mad. This is my brother. He's so mad at me. He picked up a hammer, and he looked at me, and he just, he winged that thing right at me, caught me in the stomach. And I'm still glad I had a snow, uh, snowmobile suit on, you know. But it caught me right in the stomach, and then he saw, and I just got furious with him. And he, he, he looked at me and said, oh my goodness, I, no, I was three years older at the time. And he buried his head in the snow. He just stuck his head right in the tunnel that I just caved in and hid. And I, I started pummeling him and I got him you know, with my mittens and I turned him around and pummeled him some more. And by the end of it all, we're all bloody and beaten and everything. And he goes up to the house crying to mom. And what do you think I did? I ran away. I ran away to the Catholic church in our town. There was this grave, there's the cemetery, and I hid because, well, we were Baptists, and where do you go if you're Baptist? You go to the other church, you know? And I sat there in the snowy cemetery, and I was like, oh, Lord, please don't let my dad find me, you know? I do not want my dad to find me doing this. What do we do when we sin? We hide. We want to hide. It's the first instinct between us and God to hide. When, when Adam and Eve, first thing that goes wrong in the history of the world, they take a bite of that fruit, you all know the story, what do they do? They hide. God comes walking in the garden. Where are you, Adam? And what does Adam say? I'm hiding. He uses other language. He says, I'm naked and I don't want you to see me. But the point is, he realizes that he's got something to hide for the first time in his life. Before that moment, before sin entered the world, nobody knew they needed to hide anything. Afterwards, all of us are born in some way, shape, or form hiding a lot of our lives. 
And we have to work to not do that. And so John says, listen, if you want to be like God, God is light, you're going to have to stop hiding. You're going to have to become authentic. You're going to have to become people who actually look like what you are. You know, it's easy to walk in church on Sunday morning and look like something other than we are, right? You know, I, I paste a smile on my face about the time I cross the Schuylkill River every Sunday morning. You know, I, you, you have to. You think, well, I've got to somehow hide what's really going on. Do we? You know, when somebody says, how are you doing? Do, maybe one of the things we should say is just exactly how we are doing. I'm struggling. I need some help. Whatever it is in our lives that's, that's getting us and, and hiding us from God and keeping us from God, God wants us to be open about it. We'll talk a little bit more about how to do that. But then there's this second, there's this second, this second thing we do wrong. And I'll, I'll put my word for it up here. I, I think what John means is we argue with God. We argue with God. Okay? What he literally says in verse 8, and I'll read it for you again, is if we say that we have not have I'm sorry, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, the way that really works out in our lives is that we do things that are wrong, right? You and I have all done things that are wrong. But we look at God and we say, somehow it's excusable. It's not really a big deal because, well, my dad did this, and it's just the sort of thing, is, you know, I couldn't get past. It's a habit. It's an addiction. It's a this. It's a that. So I'm, I'm, I'm psychologically prone to it. Whatever it might be, we kind of start to argue with God about whether we're culpable, about whether we're responsible or not. My kids, they get in fights periodically, as I did before them. And uh, Sophie and Maggie, they'll get going, and, uh, you know, I'll come into the room, and they'll be, you know, wherever, and I'll come in, and I'll say, I say, okay, what happened? And they'll both instantly, they always say this, she hit me. And they, they usually say it in unison, you know what I'm saying? They're both looking at each other, she hit me. And I say, okay, Sophie, what did you do? Well, I didn't hit Maggie. What do you mean you didn't hit her? Well, I didn't. She hit me. She hit me. Oh, Maggie, did you hit Sophie? No, I didn't hit so. And they always look like, would I do that? You know, honestly, when you look at me, would, do I look like the kind, sensitive person that would hit my sister? No way. You know, so they, 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 look at, they look at me and they say these things, and I start to, so we start to change the words. Did you push your sister? No. And if I ask the question, they know to say, say no. But eventually Sophie's honest enough. Usually she says, well, I, I did this. Eh. Like that, you know what I'm saying? And that, then there, there's no defining term that can, that can describe that eh thing, you know, that we do. But it's the sort of thing that lets you know that, what did she do? She hit her sister, you know? And she knows that that's the rule in our house, that you don't hit another person. We don't hit people. Hitting is wrong. And they argue with me, and they try to get me to the point where I'll say that this isn't so bad what they've done. You know, I remember uh, one day coming in there and asking these questions, and I got through the elbows and the shoulders and the tummies, and I thought, what else could there be? And then I realized they were laying on the floor, and they were kicking each other, you know? And, and they were, but they weren't really kicking. They thought kicking was like the karate kid kick, you know? I'm not going to try to demonstrate that for you. But, but they were actually laying on the floor next to each other and kind of foot wrestling. I don't know how you could describe this thing. But they found, they, they continue to find ingenious ways to do the wrong thing because they think somehow that, I will not catch them. That if they can, they can argue their way out of the definition, that we somehow as parents will miss the moment. You know, we do this with God all the time. What did Satan or the serpent say in the garden to the woman? He actually literally says, is this really wrong for you to eat of this fruit? Maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it's really going to make your life better. 
Maybe it would change your life. And he starts to argue with a woman about what God has said. And instead of agreeing with God about ourselves, Eve started to disagree with God and agree with Satan, right? And she changed the definition in her mind, and she realized that what she was doing wasn't all that bad. Maybe she needed that fruit. Maybe that that fruit looked good. We all do this in our lives. Frankly, we get kind of pet peeve sins, little things in our life that we think aren't a big deal. We, we believe that there's something in our existence that it's like, well, that's that one thing, and nobody's perfect, right? I mean, everybody does something wrong. Well, it's not a big deal that I do this one thing. This passage says that's not true. It tells us that it's not true. And it's not true when we hide these things, and it's not okay when we argue about these things. It's only okay when we agree with God about these things in our lives. Let me go on one step with you and talk about what this passage says about God. It uses some words to describe God. Did you notice those words? What did it say about God in this passage? He's light. What does it mean that God is light? Pure and holy, what else? What's that? No darkness. Nothing's wrong. There's no, there's no shadow. God has no hidden missions. He doesn't ever do one thing for a reason that you don't quite see. He's always fully honest with us. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? God is light. In him there is no darkness. You know, people go wrong with God in a variety of ways, and one of the ways is we think that somehow a little bit of failure in our life isn't a big deal. When we're talking about a God who's purely light, and we're talking about human beings who are mixtures of light and darkness, we struggle between good and bad every day, well, the difference between us and our God is amazing. You've heard it before, but Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when that verse says that, what it means is God's glory is perfect and amazing and up there, and we are simply down here. There is, there is a vast chasm between us and our God. We have lost the ability to connect with him. He is light and we are not. And so when John says this line that in him, that, that this light, that God is light, and that in him we have to walk in the light, well, this is something that we can't possibly attain to. Wouldn't you agree? You know your life. How many times do you find yourself thinking just honestly about other people's needs rather than your own? If you just write it down and just kind of take a chronicle of every thought in your existence, do you think more about you than the next guy? I find that I'm I'm inherently narcissistic. I mostly do what I want to do because I want to do it. I have to work every day of my life, get up in the morning and say, I'm going to serve somebody else if I'm going to beat that thing. And what this passage tells us is that we are so akin to this darkness, we're so separated from God, and there's a vast difference between us and him that something has to be done. It also uses a couple other words to describe God. Did you catch those words? There's at least two others. You all look at me like I'm going to give you the answer. Faithful and just. God is faithful and just. And what does it say that God is faithful and just to do? Those are words, you know, uh, when, when every now and then when you see a judge, you might not want the judge to be just, right? This past uh, year, don't tell anybody this, okay? Especially don't tell Jay Deering. Is Jay here? He just always gets on me about legalities. But I, I got my car inspected on time. I got my car inspected on time. But I didn't get that little tag on my plate 
I don't know how I didn't do that, but I forgot to do that. And I was going to men's Bible study. Uh, it's a Wednesday morning. It's 5.15 or 5.30 a.m. And I am just crossing High Street on Charlotte. And this cop pulls me over. I'm, what, what, what am I doing wrong at 5.30 in the morning on High Street? You know, come on. And I, I get pulled over in, in this cop. She says, listen, uh, you don't have uh, the proper certification on your, on your license plate. And I go back there. And in fact, I don't. I, it just completely blew my mind. I, I forgot to get my license renewed or whatever it is you're supposed to do. And, and we had a rhythm of this in Michigan, and I've kind of forgotten the rhythm in Pennsylvania. It's a different time of year and so on and so forth. And so I, I thought, oh, my goodness. She says, listen, take it to the judge because something good might happen to you if you take it to the judge. I said, okay, we'll, we'll go to the judge. So I, I, I literally got a court date, okay? And, I, you know, what am I praying for at this moment? I wasn't really praying because I was guilty, but I'll just say I was really hoping for a lack of justice on this judge's part. And I got my license renewed right away, and when I got to the judge, he asked one question. He said, so have you gotten the proper paperwork done? I said, yeah, I got it done the next day. Okay, that's it, go. And that's all he said. The Bible actually says something completely different than that about our God. It says he's just and he's faithful, and he's just and he's faithful to do what? To forgive us our sins. You know, judge's job, a judge's job is to throw the book at people, right? A judge's, judge's job in most situations is to make us guilty, if we are guilty, and to make us convicted of what we need to, and actually to sentence us to whatever it is that's necessary to change our behavior. That's a judge's job. Our God is a judge who does that very well, but he does it in a very different way. He links it to this word, forgive. He says that God is faithful and God is just. And what does God do when he's faithful and just? He doesn't throw the book at us. He asks for ways to forgive. You know, the the thing about confession is it wouldn't ever work if we didn't have a God on the other end who wanted to forgive. You know, when we blow it with God, it does a couple things in our lives. It It puts guilt in our existence, okay? We know we're wrong. You know, frankly, most of us know when we, we, we just live life with a certain amount of guilt. We struggle with guilt. And it's because we've somehow blown it with God and we know this thing has gone wrong. My marker's starting to die. I'm going to switch to orange. We know this thing has gone wrong in our existence and we have this guilt in our life. There's also this other thing. Our lives get polluted. When we blow it with God, it changes the way we think. We start to rationalize. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Something has to change in here, and we have to get reformatted. You know what I'm saying? We have to get our computer hard drive reformatted to make it work the right way. And so we have this guilt problem, but we actually have what I'll call a pollution problem. We actually have lives that get polluted by stuff. And our ways of thinking, thinking and our habits and our behaviors and our bodies, they all get accustomed to the fact that we've lived lives that were kind of messed up. And God comes along and he says, listen, I am faithful and I am just and I can forgive the guilt and I can, and it uses another word, I can cleanse the pollution. I can change that stuff. I can change that stuff. You know, most of us live, live lives that aren't as hopeful as they need to be. You know, the, the one side of this whole message is, is dark. I mean, frankly, I have to tell you, God is perfect and we're not. That Every day of our lives is a, is a day when we show ourselves to come up short when it comes to Jesus Christ. We haven't lived up to what we need to. My life, your life, they're the same in this. We struggle with pollution. We struggle with guilt. 
But you know, one of the things that this passage says is, maybe the main thing, is that if we will agree with God, if we will stop hiding, if we will decide that we're going to depend on him for making us good instead of depending on ourselves, if we're going to offer this thing called our lives to him and say, listen, I realize it's a mess, but you can look at it and you can see, you delineate. There's good, there's bad, there's ugly, but figure it out, God, and show me. I'll just agree with you. Whatever you say, I'm going to rubber stamp it and say, yes, God, I'm a mess. And I need to depend on you. And only you can do this. Read with, read with me in John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, because he says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This whole passage, which is about sin, is actually written to you and to me so that we won't sin. Why is that? I mean, he's talking about all this guilt and all of this frustration that comes from sin, all of this stuff where we've fallen short of this light that God brings. And he says, in, in, in essence, listen, I am writing all this to you so that you can avoid sin in the future. You know, sometimes we have this thought in our lives that if we just threw the religious book at people, they would get it right. If we just told you how bad you are as far as being a mess, you have blown it with God and you, your behavior will only change if you get really, really, really afraid of God. If you somehow think he dislikes you if you're not right. But this passage says the opposite. It says that our God loves to forgive, that his basic character is that of a faithful, just forgiver, who when people come to him and just open up and say, this is my life, he lets it go over and over again. And not only lets it go, but he changes us, he alters us, he transforms us and blesses us with a life that is altered profoundly. And so what John says is, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, no big deal. Just listen to the tone of voice. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. If we do sin, don't worry about it. Don't, don't, don't stop. Don't blow up. Don't think your life is over because you've blown it with God. He loves to forgive. You know, one of the things about us is that we have this huge problem with being honest, and it's because we somehow think when we get to the throne room of heaven and we say, God, we knew we blow it, but it's terrible, and I didn't really want to tell you, and blah, blah, blah. And God looks at us, and he's like, I wanted to forgive you the whole time. You've been struggling and restless, sleepless nights and all this stuff for no apparent reason. There's no good reason. I've never been up here trying to throw the book at you. All I've ever wanted to do is have a relationship. All I've ever wanted to do is have you come to the, to the throne and confess it, and we just let it go. We just walk away. Last year, uh, we had some friends over, and we went on a trip, uh, me and the, the, our friends, and my daughter Maggie stayed home with, with Shelby. And I came home, and uh, it was nap time. Okay, I came home and everybody was kind of downstairs and Maggie was supposed to be upstairs sleeping. I came upstairs and I was going to use the restroom. And I come into the restroom and there was a virtual flood in the restroom. There's just water everywhere. And floating amidst the water were these things that let you know that there was actually a bathroom experience that I'm not going to be too graphic about taking place. I mean, this, was not, this is not like the supply on the, on the sink got loose. You know what I'm saying? Like something bad happened and it included the toilet. I mean, it, just, it was bad. And, and then there was incriminating little pieces of evidence, lower halves to Maggie's clothing, lying around on the floor spring, in, the, in the flood. And I could see little footprints walking away. 
And so, what, 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 where does Maggie go? She, she somehow blew this toilet up. And, you know, the whole thing just kind of did this. And uh, she was obviously aware of it as she had to take her clothes off and get away from it. And so I thought, where does she go? And I looked in her bedroom, and she had this sleeping bag on her bed. And I, you know, kind of looked in all the, the, the different clothing on the bed. And n- n- nobody's there. And I started to look all around. I started to look in the closets. I, started, I looked in Noah's room. I looked under Maggie's bed thinking maybe she's hiding because she knew I was going to be unhappy. And I, you, you should know I've had a lot of plumbing troubles with our house, and they're not good moments for me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, she has seen me lose it at pipes before, and so she probably did not want to see her dad in this moment. And so I, I, I kept looking, and I found her on my side of the bed curled up next to my pillow. You know? She didn't come looking for me when this thing happened. When the toilet exploded, she was afraid of what her dad would think. She wanted to hide, right? But she also needed me desperately. She needed a dad who would forgive and let it go. And so instead of going to the real dad, she went to the place which she associates with her dad. And she curled up on my pillow in the process, making sure that I would wash my sheets that, that evening. And she sat there. And she sat there waiting for me to come home, and she fell asleep, literally sitting on top of my pillow. You know, the thing with us and God is we want God. We need God. Even those of us who don't necessarily believe in God probably somehow deeply within us want something to be there, want to be forgiven, want to have this stuff in our lives, this pollution and this guilt. We want to let it go. But we struggle. We struggle. We think God somehow is going to throw the book at us. And we don't want to humble ourselves to the place where we can just sit in front of him and say, God, I'm sorry, I blew it again. My job is to convince you that confession, agreement with God, is a discipline. And frankly, I don't think it's a discipline for people that's a one-time deal. This isn't something that you just become a Christian and you confess your sins. It's not a weekly deal. It's a daily, it might be an hourly deal. You might have to just wake up in the morning, I do, and say, I am going to blow it. And then later on in the day, get specific with God and say, I am really sorry. You know, and, and people get very factual about confession. Well, God, you know that I keep blowing it in this area and it's no big deal. Don't do that. It's not confession until you rightly understand God's heart in the matter. When you agree with God, you agree with God about the facts. He factually knows you've blown it and you know you've blown it. But you also agree in emotion. When God says, listen, you've blown it, he grieves our failings. It hurts him that we have blown it again. It should hurt us. Not because he's going to throw the book at us, just because we've let down the closest person to us in the world. The living being, our God, loves us, and we have to come before him, and we have to confess it, and we have to confess it with everything that's in here. This is not just some weak need speech that we give once or twice a day. This is a conversation where we look at our God and we say, listen, please take responsibility for my life because I can't. And please change me because I struggle. And please forgive me because the guilt is more than my psychology can bear. My life is going to fall apart if you don't take over this stuff. And we have to do that again and again and again. And frankly, it doesn't matter how much scripture you read, and it doesn't matter how much we pray, and it doesn't matter how much you work at church or do things in your neighborhood. It doesn't matter what, whatever you do as far as volunteerism. If at the end of it, we don't agree with God about our basic life's core, the very being within us, which is messed up. The greatness of our God is that he looks at us that, and he knows that we're messed up. He knows it, and he understands it, and he forgives it. And he's capable of crossing this massive line between us and him. 
You know, it's easy for us to somehow think that we're not that far short of the glory of God. We're religious people. We, we were really, I mean, we got a couple things, but we're not really that bad. We're, we're, the distance between us and our God is massive. The amazing thing is in a single weekend 2,000 years ago, God overcame that barrier. It's done. It was done then. And if we confess it today, it's over all over again. He crosses the line that we can't cross. He comes to us and he forgives us. And there is absolutely no difficulty in his part to do this. So this is a massive problem in our end. And he has just the smallest, simplest solution that takes the problem away completely on his. Confession. Not maybe our favorite discipline, but probably the most necessary. Join me in prayer. God, we ask that you would truly help us to have courage in this area. It takes humility and it takes courage to be honest about what happens. And sometimes we have to be honest with each other. Sometimes it's just us and you. Sometimes we just need to sit alone and say, God, we've blown it and we're sorry. So often, Lord, we hide. So often we argue. We say this isn't really sin. This isn't really failure. This isn't really something that we're, we're needing to be sorry about because, because it's just not that big a deal. And in fact, Lord, it's a massive deal with you. And yet the fact is that you forgive the worst things we've ever done and you forgive the smallest things we've ever done and you forgive them on the same pace. You forgive them because the power in your life to overcome our sin is never at a loss. It's never at a lack. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we ask this morning that you would bless us with this ability, that you would help us to be both a church forgiven and a church forgiving, people who forgive each other and people who are constantly going before you and asking for forgiveness. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the single greatest gift you've ever offered us, that being forgiveness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.